Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. I'm excited to have Brian Rick, Rick Quart, who's the co-founder of Latitude and former CEO of Viva Real. Through Latitude, he now dedicates his time to providing mentorship and advice to entrepreneurs in Latin America. Uh, Brian's new book, Viva, the Entrepreneur, Founding, Scaling, and Raising Venture Capital in Latin America, shares the hard lessons he learned while building and scaling his company. He covers the best practices for communicating with the co-founder, finding great investors, and building a good board. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, it's great to be on here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, you know, you have a great story. You've been uh, you, know, you know, founder and you you now a co-founder of Latitude. Uh, how did you get your start into startups and what got you really interested to get into entrepreneurship? I, you know, I've always been an entrepreneur since I can remember, uh, you know, whether it was doing small stuff like, you know, the typical kind of selling candy to, you know, whatever, whatever I could do. Um, and the projects just kind of gradually got bigger as I, you know, as I learned more and the ambition got a little bigger and, the realization of what was possible expanded. And so, um, you know, the, the, you know, it's been ingrained in me and since an early, you know, kid. Um, but I guess the recent projects just, you know, got, got a little larger in scale. Awesome. And, uh, you know, uh, how did you get your start in Viva Real? What got you interested in, you know, online uh, real estate space? Uh, how did that happen? Sure. Sure. For the audience that doesn't know much about, you know, what we built, Basically, it's similar to like Zillow, um, you know, the Zillow, uh, you know, if you're in the US or 99 Acres, if you're in India or, you know, wh- wherever you may be located, REA in Australia. Basically, we, you know, my personal experience was that I had a terrible kind of, uh, you know, yeah, experience trying to find a property when I was living in Bogota, Colombia. And I was kind of taken advantage of in the process, uh, you know, looking for for a rental property and, I ended up not having access to all the information that was available. So it was kind of this unfair asymmetry of information. And anyways, it was a bit of a negative experience. And like most startups, you know, good ideas start from a problem. And in this case, I had experienced that personally and realized that a lot of other people had the same problem. So we went out and instead of, you know, after I solved my personal problem of finding a place, I decided I would go and aggregate all of the data. So there was a central repository. Uh, I came across a, a case study from Mercado Libre, which is today uh, close to a hundred billion dollar market cap company. And you know, it's kind of a you know started out as classifieds like eBay, and then they expanded into payments and many other things. And I realized that I wanted to build the Mercado Libre of real estate, and so that was the original kind of genesis of the idea. Uh, quickly realized that. You know, each country is very complicated to be across, you know, all, all these different, you know, geographies. And so we ended up honing in and going AAB all about Brazil. And we focused 100% on building the marketplace classifieds uh, of real estate for the country of Brazil. That's, that's, that's very interesting. And, you know, uh, it uh, looks like you've raised a lot of money, uh, you know, when you, when you started off from, you know, uh, from uh, uh, not wrong, you've raised more than $70 million. How, how was the uh, scenario when, you know, back then when you were trying to raise funds, was it, was it easy for Latin entrepreneurs to, to raise that kind of fund for, for a marketplace model like yours? Uh, absolutely not. 
<laughs> it was extremely difficult. Uh, the yeah, it took me years to raise any capital initially, and is because there was not, not any really large companies at the time, and there wasn't really a venture ecosystem. So if you were in Colombia in 2010 trying to start a, a startup, you know there wasn't there wasn't a Rappi or you know uh, or a New Bank you know to like point to and say oh the business could become this, and so and there was also no venture or even angel ecosystem. So the first capital that I raised was from you know friends, family, and fools like the classic kind of you know uh, mm -hmm. fortunate. My college roommate had an exit uh, in his business, and he kindly wrote me a. Uh, a pretty large check for the the time, and you know, and then I scraped together some money from my brother, my dad, my uncle, and anyone else that would throw some money our way. So that was the early days, and that was just the reality of most startup entrepreneurs. And we had to focus on generating revenue because you know no one would invest in a company that even if you had top line growth, it just wasn't something that happened. All of that kind of changed for me personally. So I had about two and a half years of rejection after rejection from investors. And I'd say the tipping point for me, and this is actually a great lesson for entrepreneurs listening, I was able to bring on two very strategic angel investors. Um, they, One of them was you know, by the name of Greg Waldorf, and he happened to be the first investor in Trulia, which you know was a company that scaled and raised you know, money from top venture funds and then ended up selling to Zillow for $3.5 billion dollars. And so the first investor in that company also took a small bet on me and, and, and invested in my company, along with the former CEO of one of the companies I actually already mentioned, which is called REA Group, which is a $10 billion market cap company in Australia that does something relatively similar. So the two of those investors came in at a seed round and they both participated. And then, you know, two things happened. One, I had some great insight on how to operate the business because Simon had built the same business in Australia. So I got incredible knowledge. And then two, the access to stage financing opened up for me because all of a sudden I had some credibility attached to me where, you know, uh, Greg had been an early investor in a success story, was a, a, a you know, a CEO that had operated tech companies and invested in tech companies. Mm -hmm. And then Simon had scaled the same business. So um, the fundraising, open, the floodgates opened up after that. I ended up raising my Series A from the two top investors in Latin America, um, Kazek and Monashis, uh, and they're you know, the early stage kind of Series A um, funds. And so after that happened, it was a tipping point for us. And then we were able to attract talent and capital uh, you know, in, a, in a pretty, for what was a large amount of money at the time. Now it's you know, not as much as it, as it was back then. I think I think that's a, that's a great story, and it shows the resilience of uh, a founder like you to to keep building. But you know, how much has Latam ecosystem really changed in the last ten years? Uh, you, you talked about Rappi, New Bank, which are which are great, uh, you know, brand names. But uh, also, you know, seen a lot of uh, there's been an inflection point for fintech startups in Latam. But uh, you know, what, what do you think has really changed in the last ten years for Latam market? I think that there's a couple things that have happened. First of all, the quality and caliber of entrepreneurs that are tackling big ideas is increasing dramatically. And that's just the uh, kind of the, the the virtuous cycle of having those new bank success stories and you know in prop tech, you know there's other people that came after Viveral, there's Quinto Andar, there's Loft that are now unicorns and then there's 
you know, many in fintech, e-commerce, you know, across the board in every category, there's now large companies. And this is a recent trend, right? And so I think that, you know, Mercado Libre paved the way because it's a hundred, you know, almost a hundred billion dollar company. And that showed the public markets that one, you know, if you had invested in that stock back in 2010, you know, you would have, you know, probably 25, 30x your investment on the public markets. And so that churned out a lot of talent also because people that were part of the growth, you know, the success story of that. I mean, you take one of the funds that I mentioned, Kazek. Kazek was an early investor in our in our Series A. And the founders of Kazek were, you know, one of them was a founder and another one was like the second person to join Mercado Libre team when they were at Stanford uh, back in, you know, the late 90s. So, you know, it's it's just a classic example of a maturing ecosystem where you've got, you know, some of the network effects of success that begets success. And then there becomes more confidence externally from outside investors. So that is kind of the inflection point that we've reached. And I would say that an additional inflection point is having some new kind of liquidity that has been, you know, released into the market allows for those entrepreneurs that have been successful, like myself, to reinvest back in the ecosystem. And then not only does that reinvestment help with capital and getting over the kind of, you know, the the valley of death of the, you know, the seed to series A, it, it also provides some good quality advice and clarity because, you know, I've lived a lot of, made a lot of mistakes. And so I'm able to kind of share a little bit of the, you know, the, the, the things that you don't want to do when you're building an early stage car- startup. So I think those are all things that result in a much more mature ecosystem. Got it. And, uh, you know, what are some, what are some of the uh, major trends uh, which are happening in fintech space? Uh, you know, uh, XP had, uh, you know, one, one of the largest uh, IPOs uh, in the world. And, you know, there are the, the few companies like Cashtex, which are launched uh, world's first crypto ETF. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look like, you know, Latam has, has a huge uh, crypto uh, user base, uh, which I had no idea about. You know, so where do you think are some of the largest uh, trends which are happening in the fintech? space? It's an enormous ecosystem, right? So it's hard for me, and I'm not an expert to go super deep in all of the aspects of, of fintech. But one thing that I that I am very confident about is at a high level, if we just take the banking system there, it's the high one of the highest yielding places in the world. So you take a bank like Itaú, and the margin on that business is insane. The, you know, the, the, the interest rates have been astronomical forever and the market dominance of the incumbent banks, you know, there's basically five banks that have 90 something percent of the market share. So, and then when you couple that fact with the, some of the worst NPSs that you can imagine where people literally have a, you know, they hate with a passion, the, the existing system. You, you, you present a extremely, let's call it an appetizing environment for innovation, disruption, and an opportunity to kind of start building around, you know, the, the, you know, the, all of the opportunities that are presented, uh, you know, in, in, in fintech. So that can be anywhere. I mean, crypto is definitely hashtags you mentioned, you know, they're, they're, you know, they've been doing some really impressive things there and, you know, I, I expect a lot of things to happen, um, you know, with crypto in Latin America. I mean, the famed entrepreneur, Wences Casares, uh, who is, 
also known as the godfather of Bitcoin, is from Argentina. Uh, he was, you know, preaching Bitcoin back in, you know, 2010, uh, you know, in, in the Silicon Valley, finally got a few people to listen to him. And then all of a sudden, Bitcoin, you know, has taken off since that. And so, you know, if you're if you're from Argentina or you're from, you know, Venezuela, you understand immediately, you know, the, the risks of heavy inflation and, you know, the central bank going to shit, you know, so that is uh, it's an easier thing. And that's probably why the, the crypto adoption has been accelerated in markets like that, because there's an awareness, you know, we look at the US as like a more of a consistent, you know, economy in that way. And it's kind of just like, it's just an acceptance that that's how things work. And it's always going to be that way. And so I think that when you come from a more volatile, uh, you know, uh, society, then you understand it faster because, you know, you can understand the, the implications of it. So that's on the crypto side. In terms of fintech, I mean, listen, everywhere you look, there's an opportunity in fintech. Um, there's an incredible, you know, founding team that I that I recently, um, you know, had the, you know, the privilege of investing that were part of Latitude, um, you know, called Pomelo. And they're, you know, they're, you know, they're starting with kind of payments processing. Um, and, you know, they came out of Banco de Galicia, which is the largest Argentine bank in a company called Naranja X, Naranja X, um, which was, you know, one of the first largest neo banks in Argentina with about 5 million customers. And, you know, taking all of that experience from, you know, from that company and Mercado Pago, which is the kind of PayPal of Latin America owned by Mercado Libre. And, you know, there's just a, a, an opportunity there to, to focus and build something better than incumbents. And so I think that there's an, an incredible opportunity wherever you look. I mean, you know, financial inclusion. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of you know, Emma, uh, which he's building at Hefa. Hefa is the bank for underbanked and unbanked women in Latin, starting in Latin America. And I mean, that's just a tremendous opportunity where, you know, the traditional banks are not going to play in that space because they're just sitting on their, you know, their, their kind of pot of gold for, you know, for, for, for decades and haven't been really forced to innovate. And so I, I think they're waking up, but, you know, it's, it's the kind of the speedboat versus the, you know, the, the freight ship comparison, you know, or a cruise ship, like to turn a cruise ship around in the middle Atlantic is, is a slow, it's a slow process. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're able to, you know, on a faster kind of speedboat yacht, you can, you know, you can maneuver a little quick, quicker. And so I think that the early stage ecosystem is, you know, right for, you know, for disruption and that's happening as we speak. I think I think that's a that's a great uh, knowledge about uh, the fintech space in Latin and yeah you, know, you know I just wanted to get back into into marketplaces uh, since you've been part of part of one do you think uh, one should look at chasing GMV uh, when uh, when you're building marketplaces uh, do you think that is that is an important uh, metric for a for a founder to look at? Do I think GMV is an important metric in marketplaces? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an important metric. Um, it gives you an idea of volume. I think that the thing that's more important if you're an early stage founder and you're building a marketplace is to make sure you have liquidity. Um, that's the obvious, uh, you know, one. And I think that, you know, the, the the GMV question will take care of itself if you're in a large market and you're providing liquidity and you know you're you're solving solving a problem uh, of bringing people together. Uh, the GMV will resolve itself if it's you know if it's a if it's a big pie and, you know, you're, you're reducing friction for the two parties. So I probably, you know, I would look at GMV as like, 
you know, a good, good signal and sign of whether things are working. Um, But, you know, I'd probably, um, you know, maybe depending on the marketplace, obviously marketplaces can be a lot of different things and, and there's a lot of different sectors. So I don't know if there's any one specific metric that I would say is the, the mother of all metrics, but obviously GMV is an important aspect and it, you know, it, you know, coupled with, you know, kind of the take rate and whatever your revenue model is for, for the marketplace. Uh, and are there any other KPIs which, you know, founders should uh, be aware of when they're looking into marketplaces uh, so that, you know, they can show that growth trajectory to the investors? Yeah, in terms of, you know, again, this all depends on the sector you're, you're focused on. I, I would say that if you're a marketplace, you should have your OMTM. You're familiar with OMTM, right? Uh, one, me- one metric that matters. Okay. And so I think instead of really analyzing every single metric, I think that you should, particularly this is advice goes to early stage founders, right? Less, less so like when you're at scale and you're optimizing your marketplace and other, and other things. I think that in our case, having the obsession with one specific metric allows for focus and allows for unlocking value in a much more efficient way. If you're trying to manage a, a list of you know 10 KPIs and you're an early stage marketplace you, you're there's usually one thing that there's usually one thing that releases value and in our case that kind of value was was really released by you know in, in, in real estate it's a bit different than other marketplaces you know you have to look at which side of the marketplace is harder is it the supply side is it the demand side and you know you have to look at the business model is it are you a verticalized solution? Are you, you know, participating in the, you know, a take rate? And, you know, are you, is it, you know, a full stack solution? There's many, you know, is it a managed marketplace? There's so many different variables of marketplaces. But when I look at, you know, our success, I, I would say that one of the key components to why we were successful was we had a really clear metric of what was success for us. And in our case, we understood that in a market, a real estate marketplace, you needed to have all the inventory because if you're a consumer and you're looking for a property in a specific neighborhood, if you only have 10% of the inventory available, you're not providing a good consumer experience because you're not, you know, giving the the kind of the options that are available and therefore, you're, you know, the decision-making process isn't fully complete. And so we obsessed about pretty much one metric, which was uh, volume of inventory. And we also understood that that volume of inventory was tied to the, you know, the demand. So the more supply we got, the more demand we got, because it was directly connected with, you know, the 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 search in Google. More inventory we had, became more indexed properties we had, and the better rankings we had in Google for you know searches for real estate in a specific neighborhood. And there was an inflection point when we had a certain number of listings in a specific geographic region that kind of brought us up to the top of the search results. So that advice would not be good advice if you're a jobs marketplace or because, you know, just the inventory is not the only thing that helps you. If you aggregate every single job, but you don't have people searching for the jobs, then you have a bunch of frustrated companies that don't, you know, end up filling the jobs because there's not a good kind of, you know, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the imbalance of supply and demand isn't there. And so I think that um, it all depends on the marketplace. But my advice to early stage founders is to figure out what your one metric is that unlocks massive amounts of value and then obsess over that metric and, you know, kind of nail that before you kind of scale everything else.
No, I think uh, this is great because one main metric is what, uh, you know, marketplace founders should really look at. And, you know, it's part of a, uh, a travel marketplace called OU Rooms in India. And, you know, we we really went after one one mm-hmm. particular me- metric was, uh, you know, when we are adding more, more supply uh, into the market. But, uh, you know, when it comes to marketplaces uh, and, you know, somebody's trying to build a B2B or B2C marketplace, uh, w- w- what do you think comes first, the supply or demand? Uh, what would your advice be for a founder who's trying to you know build a build a marketplace? Uh, uh, what should come first? Uh, should they focus more on supply or demand? Again, I think it goes back to the business business and the business model and like the which marketplace is harder is is there one that's more you know um, you know needs more kind of aggregation? Is there one that you know? There, there, so it really depends on. I would probably you know focus on the har- harder side of the marketplace first. Um, and, and, you know, really figure out how to crack that, but I don't want to give, um, all encompassing advice because again, the marketplace, you know, itself is, is it's a marketplace of marketplaces. So I don't want to, uh, give generic advice. Um, and oftentimes I'll have a conversation with the founder and I'll ask a handful of questions. If you go to NFX, um, you know, they're a great fund, uh, early stage seed and, and kind of series A investor, they have incredible content about marketplace businesses and network effects. And I would link up some of the articles that they've written. They even have some questionnaires um, for founders that, you know, basically ask them question. Uh, it's a scorecard. So I would go to, I would type in Google NFX marketplace scorecard. And then I would um, fill out the scorecard and basically, you know, is it, you know, is it one-sided? Is it two-sided? Is it a three-sided? Is it an N-sided marketplace? And, and I would, you know, kind of really, really evaluate where you fit into this. And then I think that you'll get some, you know, some good, uh, you know, ideas around, uh, you know, what the economic advantage is for the supply side and economic advantage for the demand side and really try to, you know, understand, you know, is this a high frequency on the demand side? Is it a low frequency? Is there the average sales price is, you know, is X? Uh, how many suppliers do we have in the marketplace? You know, what's the volume of buyers that are, that are there? And I think all those questions should basically point you in the right direction for you to have clarity on where you should be focusing. And so I just want to, you know, caution against giving, you know, kind of all knowing advice when, uh, I think a lot of this really depends on your 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 you know specifics of what you're building. Right. No, absolutely. I think I think uh, a generic advice is not applicable here. We'll we'll put uh, the NFX you know so scorecard uh, link uh, in, in our show notes. And you you know our, uh, you are also co-founder of uh, 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 Latitude. Uh, you know, uh, is Latitude uh, very similar to Y Combinator? And you know, is like is like is like a fellowship? And what made you uh, build Latitude? Sure. Um, so I'll first say what it is, and then I'll talk more about how how it. So in terms of what it is, it's it's in it's in progress. So we don't really know what we we're going to become yet. Uh, like most startups, we we know what problem we're, we're we're trying to solve for, which is just the journey of an early stage founder in Latin America is just impossibly hard from many standpoints. From the moment you create your company, literally, it's a hard process. Like it took me six months to set up my operation just from a legal standpoint. And it's easier now, but it's still a lot of friction. So to building your team, to raising capital, um, finding customers, all those things are just 
They're ju- it's just particularly hard in, in Latin America for uh, many number of reasons. So that's the particular problem that we're trying to do. And, and we think that we can solve that by building a strong community, a series of products that you know service early stage founders, which we have in our roadmap. And then we've also attached, uh, snapped on a small, tiny angel uh, called an angel fund, uh, you know, a rolling fund on AngelList, which so we will, you know, you, you think about capital advice and network as kind of three chunks of value add for founders. And I think most most of the existing kind of, you know, investment funds out there, they, they really provide mostly capital and the advice and the network is not really the forte of most most investors. And so we actually started Latitude with the mentality 100% focused on the advice and network. We didn't even have capital. Uh, and that was, we, we unbundled the capital from the network and the advice, and we wanted to get really good at the network and the advice because it's easy to get people to like you when you have money. Right. I, I can, I can, I can, you know, it's easy to become friends with someone when they're looking for capital from you. Um, right. But when you're just there trying to help and make their journey easier and support them, whether that's, you know, psychologically or with advice or whatever it is. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. So we built this robust community. I would describe it as YC and Stanford having a Latin baby. Um, you know, that would be, be my kind of like fun way of describing it. But, you know, it's a bit like YC because we have an admissions process that's very stringent and, and tough to get into. Uh, and there's a high you know number of curated founders. We don't actually take equity in the company by getting in. At least we don't today. We may, we may evolve the business in the future. We actually feel that YC is a great value add to what we're building because in some cases we'll prep founders to get into YC. And we've had probably close to a dozen founders that have already gone through YC that have come through our program. And so I don't look at it as a kind of competitive scenario. I look at it more as an opportunity for us to expand the ecosystem and if that's a direction you want to take as a founder and you want to go to YC, we're, you know, we're happy to help. We might toss a small check-in also. Uh, that's something that we, we, you know, as we have this rolling fund. So that's kind of in a nutshell what we do. And we're also hyper-local, right? So, uh, you know, YC is a global thing and we're, you know, they have a lot of founders from Latin America, but all of our mentor network, all of our, you know, our LPs in the fund, all of our um, participants, they're all focused on building or investing or supporting Latin America. So that kind of gives us a nice uh, edge over anyone that's you know trying to build something similar. And so that's in a nutshell what we are. It's it's an education company meets a fund, you know, all tied up in a in a really nice virtual remote community. All right. And you know, I just want to deep dive into, into your investment thesis. Are you uh, stage or sector agnostic? Uh, since you you know focusing only on Latin America, uh, are there any certain sectors sectors that you focus on? We're religiously focused on early stage okay. um, because that's where we think that the 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 need is, um, and so we invest from PowerPoint to kind of MVP, you know, through kind of you know seed, 
Um, so maybe you've got, you know, kind of product market fit and you're going to raise your series A, you know, we, we try to come in before that. And uh, that's at least kind of our thesis right now. The checks are small, anywhere from 25 to 250. Um, you know, we may invest 25 or 50K in a founder at a PowerPoint that we think is high potential and that we think we can help. Um, and that, you know, it's kind of like a pre-YC thing where it would be less equity than YC would take. Uh, and then we would also plug you into a local network. So the thesis is still evolving, but we, you know, another thing that we believe is that Latin America is not a monolith. And so there's Mexico, there's Argentina, there's Chile, there's Brazil, there's Peru, there's all these different places. So we we see an opportunity to be the first kind of unified community of the of the region where, you know, maybe you're building something in Sao Paulo and someone's building something similar in Mexico. And, you know, I had a, a call with a, uh, you know, a founder who's building a prop tech today in, in Brazil. It's in the kind of vacation home space. And then someone is doing something in Mexico and they're very similar. The TAM is so large in both those markets for a real estate prop tech because, it, you know, it's, it's the largest asset class in the world. And so there's, it's pretty easy to justify. You can support both founders. Then you can bring them together. They can share notes. They can share advice. They can help each other. Um, and in some cases, they'll be competing theses, and that's okay. Um, you know, we, we can't, you know, we can't uh, just, we want to just elevate the ecosystem and that's bound to happen. So our role is really just an ecosystem builder is what we're doing. Got it. And, uh, and in, terms yeah. of, in terms of sector, in terms of sector, just to respond to the last part, uh, yeah. we try to invest in stuff we know, which is, you know, typically fintech, prop tech, software as a service type businesses, uh, e-commerce, you know, ed tech, health tech are the kind of the, and we're not experts in most of those, but we have someone in our network that is. And so whether they're an LP in our fund or they're an advisor and a mentor. And so we can be pretty broad on the spectrum of sector focus, probably won't do any like biotech or any other thing that's outside of the scope of what we at least have a general understanding of. Got it. And, uh, you, you know, when you talk about Latitude Fellowship, uh, is it is it like a like a three month uh, program or, a, or like a four week? Uh, I, I think it's a uh, it's a four week program where uh, do you also provide help after they've, uh, you know, gone through the fellowship? Sure. We're, we're, we're kind of a, a testing. We started with a two week program. Then we did a four week program. Now we're looking at a six to an eight week program. So we are very you know, the, the advantage of doing a two to four week program initially is that you have faster iterations and faster learning. So it didn't make sense for us to do a three month program or a six month program because we, we wanted to learn faster. So we will probably find our sweet spot and, you know, probably somewhere in between kind of six to eight weeks, I think would be the sweet spot. And yeah, in terms of the continued help, you know, it, we can invest in every company that comes through our platform, but we, you know, we'll invest in a handful of companies We've made two investments so far and we'll probably, you know, average, I would say, fully ramped like 10 to 12 a quarter. And so all of the companies that are in our portfolio will continue to support and help. That's part of the advantage of taking money from us is we have an incredible network and a lot of good operating experience. But we also see the community as a way to scale the help. Because if you're dropping into Mexico City and you're trying to, you know, get a fintech license, something, you know, we, we already have four or five people in our community that have done that. And so drawing out the kind of plans for how that works can be something that we can give exposure to in our community because we've built this 
really deep and you're part of on deck and on deck is a great inspiration for us. I'm a big fan of Eric and David and the whole team. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an in deck, you know, ODF four. And so I, uh, you know, a lot of the principles that we have are, are very inspired in what they've done. Um, you know, we don't plan on scaling out all of our fellowships and doing this for podcasters and every, everyone else. Like I think what they're doing is to go wider. We will go deeper in what we're building and it'll be more around venture back companies and product development, probably that will enable, um, you know, just as a spoiler, we're, we're, we're looking at building a company formation product like Stripe Atlas, where founders can go and build their, you know, their company uh, online and, you know, have their local operating entity, which is something today that you can't do on Stripe because they can't build it for the entire world. They can only build it for a, a specific geographic region. And you can't, you know, you can't launch a Cayman Islands company from Stripe Atlas which is the actual entity that you should be building for if you're building something in Latin America, because, you know, in my case, I built a Delaware C Corp and the result of that was over a hundred million dollars in unnecessary taxes that I had to pay the U S government, not me personally, but the company, uh, because we, you know, we didn't even operate in the U S so we shouldn't have had to pay taxes in the U S and unfortunately I learned the hard way. And so that's, an example of one of the products that we will build to streamline the process and reduce the friction of founding and scaling a company in Latin America, which is what we, you know, are focused on. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, OnDeck and, you know, the, the kind of community you're building. So, uh, so uh, you know, uh, I want to talk about COVID, you know, how, has it really impacted uh, the Latin uh, market uh, and, you know, uh, uh, have there been any learnings and findings in the last uh, one year or so for you? Well, listen, COVID is a really difficult situation, obviously, um, you know, for everybody. But, you know, if you look at places like Brazil or Mexico, you know, the the it's been a super challenge. So that's, first of all, like, you know, my heart goes out to anyone that's struggling with that. The obvious tailwinds that happen from this with, which is incontrovertible for most tech companies. I, I tend to put, you know, companies in three buckets. You're either taking advantage of the tailwinds of like this, you know, digital revolution that's happening and being accelerated by the current landscape. You are maybe not immediately impacted to a great deal, or you have um, some aspect of your business that is, you know, dramatically affecting, you know, and, and there's headwinds. So, if you're obviously in the tourism business, like you're 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 suffering, or if you're in the events business, unless you're a digital you know events company, you're you're getting crushed. And so, uh, I would say that if I look at my angel portfolio of sixty companies, I would say 80 percent of them are experiencing tailwinds. Um, maybe maybe it's more like seventy. I would say twenty percent are not affected. Uh, and then 10% are probably having some negative impacts of, of, of COVID. So uh, I think that the other silver lining, if you could you know, say that there's something positive that's come out of it, um, obviously doesn't outweigh the, all of the, you know, everything that's going on that's difficult, but the remote nature of, you know, the opportunity to, you know, the amount of investments that I've done have been, uh, you know, all remote and it's all in Zoom and it's, you know, and that's something that, that is good, been good for early stage founders because the the friction of capital raising has become easier because the capital is essentially, you know, it's like um, 
you know, the data packets through, through, through Zoom is the, the new kind of opportunity for, for reaching investor, right? So it's just like the friction is reduced. You're able to talk to more investors in a shorter period of time. They're committing the initial capital without having to like, you know, meet you. And, and that's something that I think has been positive for pre-seed and seed investors. Yeah, no, and for, uh, yeah, for founders and, and investors, right? Both. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. COVID has been a great inflection uh, point needs to be uh, and uh, seeing, you know, how, how the digital revolution will go from here. And, uh, you know, Brian, you, you also wrote a book which is called Viva the Entrepreneur, uh, where uh, you talk about some of the lessons, you know, what made you write the book and what was the whole journey about uh, writing and, you know, publishing the book? Rohit, uh the idea for writing the book was because I screwed up so many things building my company that I felt like it was a duty and a responsibility to help entrepreneurs avoid those mistakes. So the format of the book is broken into three kind of sections. One is the psychology piece, which I think is undiscussed. Uh, the Just the toll it takes to build a company and the emotional psychological aspects of building a company and co-founder dynamics and family and all those elements. It's just something that I think is under uh, undervalued and underestimated. And so I wanted to, you know, and I had my personal struggle, like, you know, running out of money and, you know, and all of the stresses that come and anxiety that comes with getting something off the ground and carrying the weight of your investors and your team and all those things. And so that's a, a portion of the book. The second part are, are more is more of the operations and kind of the scaling and you know, and, 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 you know, building the team and all that stuff. And so I think I made some mistakes there and I think I learned some things along the way. And then the last thing, you know, the fact that when you're raising capital, there's such an asymmetry of information between you as a founder and the investors, because of the fact that they do this for a living and they do it a hundred times to every one time you do it. And so they're just much more experienced in that. So it's my, you know, to quote kind of Brad Feld, um, you know, I hope that part of my book will help entrepreneurs become smarter than their investor, or their you know, uh, their venture capitalist or their lawyer. And so, I actually had some great lawyers over at Gunderson review a lot of the sections around the fundraising aspects and the terms and what's important in a term sheet. You know, it really comes down to you know the economics and control are the main things that are important in a term sheet. And so, a lot of founders that are inexperienced. You'll see, you know, I remember being a kind of a young entrepreneur starting out. I, I was freaked out by all the things in a term sheet because I didn't understand them. And then what is registration rights? And like, and it creates a lot of unnecessary kind of distractions for you when you're, you know, you need to focus on specific things. Obviously, the safe and the convertible note, uh, you know, have kind of made that a little more simple. But at the end of the day, when you're, when you're raising your series A and you're, you know, you haven't seen a term sheet before. I tried to make, you know, that a little easier. And then also just the dynamics of how to fundraise and how to create kind of deal heat and how to, you know, how to like, you know, work with your investors. And then also the relationship you have going forward with your investors and how to, you know, be a good steward of the capital and, you know, be a good communicator with your investors is something that I try to touch on. So it really covers quite the kind of spectrum of topics that I think most founders that are raising venture capital should be aware of. 
All right. And, uh, you know, uh, I recently had Eric Su, who runs the Marketing School podcast, and, uh, you know, he had also released uh, his own book. And, uh, you know, he talked about that, you know, uh, writing a book, it's like a five-year journey. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I just wanted to understand what was the, your process of writing the entire book and, uh, you know, what were some of the routes you took to publish and, and promote the book? Yeah, so... First of all, if you're planning on writing a book, contact scribemedia.com. This is, you know, Zach over there and Max yeah. Tucker is the founder of, uh, of Scribe Media. And basically, if you're writing a book, this is the way to do it. <coughs> I contacted Scribe and I basically, I had been taking notes for a book for a long time uh, because I, I, while I was building the company, I realized how ridiculous some of the process was and how like I just was making all these mistakes and I wanted to, I had a, a, a an awareness that I thought it would be a good opportunity to share some of the things that I'd learned on the journey. Today I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14 day free trial. And so, and I also realized that there wasn't any like really good local stories in Latin America. You know, all the inspiration comes from like, you know, Amazon or Facebook or Google. And, you know, I think that when I look at my journey, I read a case study from Mercado Libre and that was my kind of inspiration. And so I think that having local stories is really important because, it provides entrepreneurs something more relatable than like, you know, being on Sand Hill Road and raising capital, uh, you know, in the U.S. So, you know, and scaling a business in the U.S. So the process for writing it was I contacted Scribe and I, I had a lot of ideas and notes. And basically I had a Scribe, which, you know, this guy named Mark who lives in New York. And we had calls for like a few months and I would literally... Um, dictate the book to him verbally. So I would, I would literally tell him everything ab about that I wanted to include in the book. He helped me organize my thoughts and he, like a scribe. I mean, if you think back to the days of like, you know, Socrates and, you know, Plato, there was scribes back then. And, you know, that's people that can help you kind of organize your thoughts and organize your, and so I, you can call it cheating or you can just call it be, finding a smarter work stream but that was the ultimate kind of uh, way that I did this. And so I did it in a relatively efficient manner, I'd say. It still took me 18 months from kind of, you know, picking up the pen, so to speak, and then getting it hot off the press. But it, uh, it was a much more efficient and streamlined journey. I was able to do other things. You know, I transacted on my company at the same time. And so I, I was able to kind of uh, be efficient in, in getting from, you know, start to finish. And so, and then in terms of marketing the book, it's a very niche book, right? Even though I do think it's relevant for anyone, you know, I have two founders that are from India that are in our Latitude Fellowship, uh, one from New Delhi and the other one I think is from, um, I think he's from Bombay, I don't remember, but he, both of those founders are living in Latin America and they're, they, they, you know, they both they say this is relevant for India. So it's, it's, Viva the Entrepreneur starting, you know, founding, scaling, and raising venture capital in Latin America. But you could probably substitute that for any kind of emerging market in the world 
Um, and I mean, it's even relevant for the US, but I wanted to write it for a specific audience. So the marketing of the book, uh, you know, we, we became a bestseller on Amazon for, uh, you know, a little over a week. It was the number one book in venture capital in the US. Um, I, I was happy that it passed Theranos, which is, you know, the bad blood, which yeah. is kind of a, a pretty, pretty tough uh, thing to kind of pass because that's a really exciting, much more interesting than my book. And so, uh, but it was, uh, it just shows that there was a lot of demand for this. Um, and then, yeah, it, it's from there, it's, it's done pretty well. And it's now published in Brazil in Portuguese and the Spanish version is coming uh, in the next kind of couple months. I think, I think this is super inspiring and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I will put that, uh, a book in the, in the show notes. Uh, I quickly want to do the top three uh, what's your favorite business book. Favorite business book. I gotta, like, if I'm going to, I'm going to answer the question a little differently. I'm going to say, instead of favorite business book that most impacted me. Okay. Uh, and I would say on my entrepreneurial journey, I came across the book by Chris Anderson, The Long Tail. And that completely changed my thinking about businesses, marketplaces. But I would say my favorite business book is probably The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And, you know, uh, the Linda Rottenberg, who is the founder of Endeavor, uh, Endeavor Global is the entrepreneurial organization that is uplifting, you know, founders, you know, in 40 countries and they're, you know, they, they've, they've had an incredible impact. She wrote the, the foreword for my book and she kindly compared it to the hard thing about hard things for Latin America, uh, which, you know, was a huge compliment to me. Well, uh, no, I think uh, that's very exciting. And, you know, Hard Things About Things is one of the most mentioned books, uh, you know, on the podcast, because I think a lot of guests uh, do mention is their favorite business book. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started uh, Vivarial or Latitude, what is the one thing you would done differently or focused on just one thing? I think that if I were to speak to my kind of like, you know, maybe not in the beginning of the company, um, but like the advice that I would give myself, you know, it's really hard when you're starting because the beginning part of your journey is about survival. It's about, you know, living to see it, you know, to see another day. And it's really hard to be a long-term thinker when you're, when you're building something because you don't, you, you're optimizing to avoid death, right? That's right. the beginning. But I would say that like, as an early stage entrepreneur, I, I would encourage myself to know that it's, it, is, it is a sprint in the beginning, but you, know, you don't want to sprint so much that you can't make it to mile 26 on the marathon because it's also a marathon. So I think that I would encourage myself to think a little bit more long-term about what I was building and not be in such a, like, it's okay to be in a rush because you have to, speed is the ultimate competitive advantage in startup land. But at the same time, you know, obsessing about this, you know, and I guess this is a luxury that I have today where I can build for Latitude. The lesson I had from Viveral to build Latitude is that it really is a marathon. And if I'm thinking in a decade, like as a time horizon, I think I can out innovate most anyone that does something similar to me because everyone's thinking about a quarterly basis. And so it's balancing the optimization to avoid death 
while not losing sight of the big prize, you know, that can come with like relentless pursuit of a huge dream over a decade. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think you you put it very well. You know, it's like a marathon and sprint and you need to balance it out so that you can really go long. It's like what, what Eric Torrenberg says, it's like a hundred year journey. So you just need to keep going. Uh, uh, Absolutely, uh, yeah. And, and and finally, you know, what's, a, what's your favorite online tool? For example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom, or do you have any online tool? Online tool... Let me open up my cell phone so I can just see what I use mostly. Sure. Um, if it's a work productivity question, I would probably say my favorite work productivity tool would be, I would probably say if I were to describe the one that I use the most, it's either WhatsApp or, uh, or, or, um, or Slack, but I, I think that just to answer the question, I don't love either one of them because it's, you know, it's, I'm a slave to both of them. Right. So, right. Um, but I think that those are the two that I find myself uh, using most on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then if it's like for fun, um, you know, I, I gotta, I can't deny, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it, but TikTok is quite, quite entertaining. Like, and so, um, you know, I, I, I've been, you know, go, I, I can go down the rabbit hole of TikTok once in a while, um, you know, but uh, I'd say those are the two kind of, or the like the three things that I probably, you know, um, consume the most. Got it. Yeah. No, uh, uh, these three are all very useful. It's just that TikTok is banned in India, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, till time was not, wasn't banned. I think TikTok is very famous in India as well. And you're not uh, missing that much. You're probably more productive. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, it's for me, it's like, if I want to just like not think about something and I can distract my mind and be brainless for like 15 minutes, that's my guilty 15 minutes of just like not thinking about anything and just maybe laughing or being entertained. Got it. And, uh, uh, Brian, uh, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more, more about Latitude and your book, Viva the Entrepreneur? Yeah. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, Brian Reckworth, uh, you know, is my handle which is just my name. And then, you know, I'm on clubhouse at, at rec R E Q. Uh, LinkedIn is another way to reach me, but like I get so much spam on LinkedIn that I might not see what you send me. So direct messages on Twitter are more efficient and uh, yeah. And then latitude.com. And then if you're, uh, if you're a potential investor that happens to be an operator or a, you know, or a, uh, a GP of a top fund and you, you know, you want to kind of buy a basket of early stage LATAM startups, our rolling fund, you can check it out at fund.latitude, which is latitude without the E, you know, latitude in Spanish, latitude, okay. fund.latitude.com. And that will give you more information about our subscription and minimum check. And it'll, you can deep dive a bunch of stuff on LATAM there because there's some good, interesting things about the you know the ecosystem. Got it. Uh, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Likewise, it was great. Thank you for reaching out and uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you and, and good luck with everything and congrats on the podcast. Uh, uh, it's an inspiration that you've been doing this for three and a half years because the Latitude podcast just started last year. And so uh, can I ask you a question? Sure, absolutely. What What is the advice you have for me that I'm early in my podcasting journey? What would be the single 
thing that you learned that you think is useful for me as I embark on the journey of kind of trying to democratize more access to information and founders and investors in Latin America? What advice do you have? Uh, I think I think content uh, cadence and and just being consistent uh, and not trying to miss out any any week where you're, you're not releasing a podcast. Uh, I just know that I've just missed out two weeks where I've not released a podcast. And since I know th- I remember this means you know I've been very consistent and and just pushing out one podcast uh, a week. I know there there's some bigger podcasters who are doing you know hundred hundred and fifty podcasts a year, but I do around you know once a week and uh, I make sure that, you know, uh, I don't miss out on the podcast. So something like a same field strategy where you're just not missing out on any, any weeks and just being consistently producing podcasts has helped me, you know, get to 180 podcasts now. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I'm catching up with Harry Stebbings uh, tomorrow. Um, and he, it looks like he reached an inflection point when he just was consistent. And, and so I'm, um, I'm interested to hearing what his experience is. And yeah, I, I was wondering, do you have any good resources for scaling up the editing? Because if, if you know anyone, you know, that can help with that. We have like one editor, but I'm actually considering doubling down and doing two to three a week. Um, and in order to do that, I'm going to need more resources. Is there a service that you use? Um, if you could share more information about how you do that. Uh, I actually outsource uh, the editing work, but Audacity is one of the best editing tools and, uh, you know, the couple of them, but, uh, when you outsource it, do you have someone that does it and do they have capacity to do more? Uh, I, I can definitely hit up with my editor and ask, uh, you know, if they can, they can handle more work. But uh, but there's there, there a lot of good uh, editing tools and editors who can who can always edit the work. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it'd be great if you have a resource there. Just I'm looking for other you know ways to scale it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.